If you have your Bibles, please pull them out or turn on your phones to Psalm chapter 12. Every Communion Sunday, as many of you or most of you will know, we pause and reflect on the worship book that is in God's Word, and Psalm is that book. I'm going to read the text for us together, but be great if you could turn there so we could reflect in our time in the Word this morning on the specifics that the Lord has written for us. And it's interesting, this is not the kind of psalm, any, psalm, and any passage in the Bible that starts with the word help is not to be read like a menu. We don't have tone in the Bible, but you can only imagine that this is a prayer of crying out. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the psalmist comments, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Let's pray. Father, this is a harsh psalm that speaks about our world. It wasn't written just in recent days, but ancient of days. Long ago, you saw the world for what it was. And help us to understand what it says and to be comforted by not only the prayer of the psalmist, but by the response of our Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Laura and I were walking down that path that runs along, goes right across the elevator, runs along Poison Ivy there. This was a few days ago. We're, we're going down as far as she can make it. And then we turn around and come back toward our car, which is parked there. And we come to that little crosswalk. Now, in the UK, that, that would be a, the, called a zebra crossing when they have the big, bright white lines. And they were rigid about letting people walk across freely. On elevator road there, go at your own risk. So we wait. This is because everybody here drives, right? And walkers are the exception. Welcome to American zoning in suburbia. But in the UK, it's the reverse. You only drive if you have to. Everybody walks. So you're used to that kind of reality. And so anyway, we're standing there waiting for an opening. And you know my wife is ALS, and so she's walking about half the speed of a normal walker, so she's slower. So we're not just going to jog across when there's a small gap. We have to wait. Well, a car coming, moving east stops and waves us on, and there was a car coming, but it was way down there, very polite, which is honestly what you're supposed to do 
at the zebra crossing. So we start to walk across. Well, that car coming west is accelerating at a high rate past Roscoe Middle School, and it's coming, and I see it, so Laura's going, and I kind of step in the middle of the road, put my arm up to make sure that it stops. It's going to see me better than it's going to see her, because she's going to go a little slower. Well, it's not slowing down. And it goes as aggressively as it can, and it honks right in front of me. Now, a few emotions came up that were less than Christ-like in that moment. I didn't say anything. I thought a lot of things. And of course, it made my wife jump. With ALS, your reflexes are hypersensitive, so it only slowed her up more. Right? And we wait. We go across the road. Now, you add that experience to what we're seeing all the time in our world, it doesn't take much for you to figure out that there's just a lot of evil and brokenness and selfishness and mess going on in our world. Just watching some of the news last night with one of our kids. The Japanese prime minister rushed off as a pipe bomb was thrown in his midst. And my son looks over to us and says, this, this stuff is crazy. The psalmist knows this. The language in verses 1 and 2 is stark in this depiction of the moral degeneration of society. And please hear this. This wasn't written just this week. It's not like in the days of the psalmist, it was, everybody was leave it to beaver. See, Christians should know this. You read the Psalms and you're like, he's describing our world, but that was also their world. It really is untrue, but I think we frame it this way, but it really is untrue to say that the world has gotten worse. It technically, theologically, cannot. Because sin doesn't have gradations and levels. When sin entered in the world and death entered with it, that was the world. You've just seen different manifestations, or maybe like the ocean where there's the tide ebbs and flows. But if you stay there more than 12 hours, it'll come back and get you wet too. Say it another way, it's it's just different styles of the same clothing, but everyone's naked underneath. It just covers it in different ways. But everybody's naked under their clothes. Every culture covers it in different ways, but there's nakedness underneath. The psalmist cries out for help. Help, Lord. So so think of that emotion, that brokenness of the psalmist. No one is faithful anymore. It might be a bit hyperbolic, but that's what it feels like. You're alone. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. That's a, that's a bold statement. That's, that's pretty cosmic. And then listen to verse 2. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. Everyone's got an agenda. That's not just talking about the shallow talk of how's the weather or how the bears or packers looking. It's about talk that is filled with self-benefiting lies. 
the mirage of what is true, seeking to wound or to gain from. In in verses 3 and 4, the the psalmist directs us to place our experience before the feet of the Lord. Notice that's the response. The psalmist can't do anything about it. It's not like you can make the world a better place, necessarily. The psalmist just says, just give this to the Lord. Verse 3, may the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. May the Lord do that. And, And it describes it as, setting them up for judgment. Verse four, those who say, by our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? And the psalmist says, Lord, did you hear what he just said? Are you gonna respond to that? Because I can't shut their mouths. Are you gonna respond? These words are meant to encourage, but also challenge God's people. If you feel like an alien and stranger in our society today, the psalmist reminds you you're not alone. And you're not the first generation to feel that way. But this is also a bit of a challenge to God's people to keep our word, to speak words that lift up, and to seek the good of others. That's the challenge. That we would be the loyal who have not vanished from the human race. I love, I love the promise that Jeremiah 32 makes. I even put it there in your notes for you. Jeremiah 32 makes this promise that God says will happen. And we understand from the larger picture of Scripture that this, this promise is the work God will do in his people. Not in the culture at large, but this is the work God will do in his people. He will form us in some way, in some way by, the, by the work of Christ, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, the conviction of sin, by the sanctifying work of the gospel. He will work in us so that this, look, look at these, the verses in your notes there. Verse 38, they will be my people and I will be their God. That's very in contrast to the verse 4 of Psalm 12. Who is Lord over us? So God's people know who the Lord is. But notice where it ends in verse 39. I will give them, this is God saying this. I will give them singleness of heart and action. So that they will always fear me. But do you know what that phrase singleness of heart of action means? What is happening on the outside matches the inside. Like the deep down character that starts in the heart will blossom, will harvest into good deeds and a good life. That's the opposite of Psalm 12. Where they speak, it sounds good, but deep down it's cancer. Well, I don't want you to miss verse 5, and we're going to look at the last four verses as well, but verse 5 is a bit of a unique verse in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, and if I count it right, I think it's either four or five only in which the prayer is directly answered by God himself, right? So there's a ton of Psalms where the psalmist prays, and it's like, chirp, 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 or the bird, there's nothing. God doesn't say anything. But in about four or five psalms, God actually responds in the middle of the prayer. And this is the first one. So note that. 
Like this isn't, this isn't where, it doesn't mean that God isn't caring or responding to the others, but you will see some emphasis of God saying, I will be with you, my children. Just like in Jeremiah, he promised to give them singleness of heart and action. So the, verse five is the words of the Lord. It says, says the Lord in the middle, but I don't want you to miss that. It's not the psalmist speaking in verse five. Now the Lord's voice takes over. And he says, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. Did you ever have one of those stubborn kids that didn't do, didn't do what you were saying until you got off the chair? We had one of those. The moment I'm getting off the chair, like, sorry! Okay, I'll do it! Like, imagine that. I will now arise, says God. I will protect them He's talking about his people, his children. I will protect them from those who malign them. And I love how the psalmist both in verse six gives commentary on that, and then in verses seven and eight gives application or exhortation. Here's six. Oh, by the way, reader, he says, the words of the Lord are flawless. Like he never fails on what he says he's going to do. Like, you know that, right? Like this is guaranteed. This is a contract. This is for sure. The words of the Lord are flawless. Like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. That's the Bible language of saying you can guarantee that the guys that said what they said in verse four are going to get it. And then he gives exhortation in the end. You, Lord, now the psalmist ends his prayer. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe. Notice it went from a prayer of help to a prayer of praise. You will keep the needy safe. You will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Brothers and sisters, don't you ever think God does not see your plight? That he doesn't know what's happening in our society, generations past, or if he doesn't return, generations future. Or that he doesn't respond to the needs of the hurting. Now be warned, notice what got him up. It wasn't just a smack talk in verse 4. Notice what verse 5 says got him up. It was injustice. When the poor were plundered and the needy were groaning, God got up. So be warned, Christians, you better fight for justice and not be an agent of injustice. Remember Jeremiah? I will give them singleness of heart and action. But the psalmist ends with this realistically hopeful message. It's not naively hopeful, it's realistically, meaning it's not just going to go away overnight. But we know in due course, in his perfect time and in his masterful ways, the Lord will care for his people even while the wicked boldly continue their behaviors of injustice and immorality. These words teach the church a couple things. The church when living faithfully, is actually going to be a moral minority. Not a moral majority. 
A moral minority, by the way, is not good because of their morality, but because of their redeemer. Remember Jeremiah? I will give them singleness of heart and action. And arguably, a moral minority has a habitual heart of repentance. I love the way Martin Luther framed it. Now, he wrestled with Roman Catholic doctrine and Protestant view of justification by faith and the gospel. But one of the things he says regularly in his writings, and I've got like 60 volumes of his writings, and one of the things he says over and over again is that the, the primary most innate posture of the Christian is a posture of repentance. And that posture of repentance is also a posture of gratitude, he would say. Because when you know that God is good and has died for your sins, you feel the weight of your sin and you feel the generosity of the giver. But somebody who has a habitual heart of repentance deals with their sinfulness. They don't cover it up. They're not afraid to. They know it's covered. They've regularly eaten from the table of grace. They deal with and address sin in their own midst. Unlike some churches or denominations in recent days in this massive amount of sex abuse cover-up. That is not the response of the church. And they practice and pursue justice in their community. Singleness of heart and action. See, the challenge, though, brothers and sisters, is living in an immoral society in it, but not of it. That's the trick. How do we live in, but not of the world? That's the Bible's language. How do you live in, but not of? And you're going to be tempted to either fight fire with fire Hey, they're tough. We got to get tough. Hey, they're good with words. We need a wordsmith that can shove it right back in their face. That's the temptation. There's that, there's that defense against bent. Or it's just to flee. There's the purity from. As if the sinful problem is only out there and not in here. Where the biblical response is faithful presence. In, but not of, a moral minority who have been, had within them by the Spirit this marriage of heart and action because of the work of the gospel. And a posture of repentance and gratitude causes us to live differently so that the psalmist can see that there are some faithful still. There are some who are loyal Verse 1, who have not quite yet vanished from the earth. It was interesting, uh, that incident shook us up a little bit with that honking car and the fact that I thought I was going to get hit by it. And the immediate response by three people around us was interesting. The guy that had stopped and let us walk across yelled at the other car and then specifically apologized on behalf of that other car to me and my wife. A biker who was waiting to go the other way got off her bike, came up to ask if we were okay, and apologized on behalf of that other car. I even said to her, did you know the car? Oh, I have no idea who that is. I'd like to know, she said. 
And then another lady who was getting in her car walked up and just spoke about how difficult that must have been and apologized on that car's behalf. And in the midst of that aggressive red SUV, if you have a red SUV, let me know. I'm just kidding. In the midst of that aggressive response to that red SUV, there was a bit of a glimpse of a faithful presence. Don't know if they were believers, didn't know any of those three people. But they didn't like what they saw. They weren't afraid to say it and to live differently. And it reminds me of the prayer of Psalm 12. And that might just be common grace, good citizens, and kind people. But for us, church, for Christians, church, that is what singleness of heart and action look like. Where we are faithfully present in the world, but not of it. And we endure the prideful boasts and injustice of a broken world, and we rest at the feet of God our prayers, and we trust in Him to sustain us and to live differently. Let's pray. Lord, we ask as as the psalmist that you would help us when we feel like there is no one faithful anymore, as we are a moral minority. Not moral because of our own goodness, but because of your goodness. Not moral because our deeds are pure, but because they've been purified by Jesus. Lord, give us, as Jeremiah prophesied would be true, give us singleness of heart and action so that we may be faithful to you and faithful to our neighbors in our communities. Because when the poor are plundered and the needy groan, we rise up like our Lord because we want to be loyal to our King and faithful to the one who was faithful first to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.